I can't think of any dementia patient who was glad to have dementia and was looking forward to the, the years of losing their mind. Hi, I'm Bobby. Um, having been a caregiver for my father-in-law, Roger, for seven years, I know firsthand how challenging being a family caregiver can be. And I am now a certified caregiving consultant and educator, a caregiver support group leader, and an international presenter on caregiving issues. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and a certified music therapist. And this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. Here we focus on the caregiver, offer practical insights, share some emotional support, and we also might share a laugh or two, because we all know laughter is the best medicine. And don't forget the wine, Mike. You know I don't forget the wine. And I appreciate it, and it is Wine Friday, which is different from Wine Wednesday. Right, it's two days later. (laughs) (laughs) When your dad reached the point that we were looking into in-home hospice and they come in and they were evaluating him, one of the things that they brought with them was called a comfort kit. Yes, and I remember how upset I was over the comfort kit and more specifically that there was morphine in the comfort kit to give my father. And I think a day that still lives very much in my heart was when I came to the and said for the first time that I had administered morphine to him to help make him comfortable. And you got very, very uncomfortable with that. And my feeling at the time was, I'd been caring for this man for seven years, and now you don't trust me? Well, it wasn't so much that I didn't trust you, it's I didn't trust family. (laughs) And not you as family, but my brother, his brother, you know, they were... They weren't participants, and then if something happened and it was morphine in his system, what were they going to say? And that's the part that really, really bothered me. But I also remember um, the hospice social worker came in and talked to me and gave me this booklet and said, you know, you might want to read this booklet. And I sat down reading the booklet, and I was a little skeptical. But uh, I laid the booklet down, and I happened to notice that it was written by a Reverend Hank Dunn. And I went, huh, (laughs) Hank Dunn. I wonder if this is the same Reverend Hank Dunn, whose daughter and our daughter were BFFs, were (laughs) maids of honor in each other's wedding. And he also married our son and daughter-in-law. And sure enough, the picture in the back, it was the same guy. So it brought a whole different ease reading that book and what he was putting forth in the book. And his explanation about end-of-life issues. Yes. And and that brings us to today's guest. He's a past president of the Northern Virginia chapter of the Alzheimer's Association and has served on several ethics committees. Since 1983, he has ministered in nursing homes, hospice programs, and hospitals. He is an expert on the topic of helping patients and their families with end-of-life decisions. He is a frequent speaker nationally on the topic of spirituality, healthcare, and making end-of-life decisions, and an author with over 4 million book sales. Please welcome our dear friend, Reverend Hank Dunn. Well, thank you for having me. Um, 
And I know your course are out there in Loudoun County where I was the chaplain there for a number of right. years. So I, I know you did not have the pleasure of taking care of your dad, but uh, our people did. So yeah. Oh. You, you know. <laughs> yeah. Whew. So you know, not, oh, oh, go, go ahead, ahead, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't Can I say one thing about your story? Well, pardon me? Uh, can I say one thing about your story, about Please. your getting hospice in there? And uh, I, uh, you, you did mention it, that the uh, hospice nurse, but I'm guessing they explain what morphine does and what it doesn't do. And it does not kill patients. Um, when you give them in doses, increasing doses to take care of the pain or shortness of breath. Exactly. It really is used for that quite a bit and is quite effective. And um, this is one of the, the myths about morphine. And, and uh, I run into it all the time. And as a matter of fact, um, I think it was the 2001 edition of my book. I, I, I added a long section on pain control just to talk about that. So I had pain control experts help me write that section. So anyway, if people are only hearing part of this podcast, I don't want them to get away and start worrying about the morphine that you were worried about and understandable. It, uh, it sounds scary, but it's so normal in end of life care. And it is so helpful. I think one of the reasons he had a problem with it was when it was in, explained in depth to me, he was at work because he had that, as he called it, pesky day, day job to support us so I could be with his father through the day. And maybe that hadn't been, hadn't been made as clear to him as it had been to me. But the social worker that came in did explain that very, took a whole lot of time explaining that to me, that yes, this was help him breathe. And then the first time I was seeing him kind of gasping for air and she administered the um, little bit of morphine and how within 45 to 60 seconds his breathing totally relaxed then I understood and I got it but that first oh my god there's morphine here just sent me into a panic because I've heard all my life about morphine bad <laughs> yeah and you, you saw the movie the English patient and that, that yeah did the words for hospice care of anything so one of the points, the principles here of making end-of-life decision is our real goal is to keep the patient comfortable. Absolutely. Uh, not, not hastening their death, but just keep them comfortable. Uh, morphine does not hasten the death, but it does keep them comfortable. And so it's, it's a good, actually a good place to start with, especially with advanced dementia patients as they're uh, moving toward death of comfort, comfort, comfort. That is our overall goal because you're not going to cure the disease, uh, but you can keep them comfortable in the last stages. Alzheimer's and the various forms of dementia have been called the, the, the long goodbye because very often caregivers are caring for their person uh, with one of these dreadful brain diseases for years. Um, I thought seven years was a long time until I started working more in the Alzheimer's community. And sometimes it's 10 years, it's 15 years. It's, it's a, it can be a very, very long time. And you might think, you know, having that time to watch this very slow decline 
that people would think to start making end-of-life decisions. But so many people, including our own daughter, the very idea of losing one of us is so difficult, they don't even want to talk about it. They don't want to consider it. What do you do and what advice could you give people to encourage them to make these decisions when people are healthy? Well, you can't make all the decisions because you have no idea how many decisions are down the road that that are going to impact the dying process. But um, as um, you had a podcast earlier about um, uh, long-term care planning, and they talked about in the early stages of the disease, the patient with dementia can still participate in making decisions about their care. If they understand um, what the uh, revocations of the treatment they're thinking about, or more importantly, who they want to decide for them. So just on the documents that Durable Power of Attorney for Healthcare is so important, and that's one person with early dementia can still make the decision, who is it I want? to make the decision for me. My son, my daughter, um, and of course spouse probably if the spouse is living. And they may have very different skill sets. So what you might automatically come to mind is that person might not end up being the best person at all. Well, um, w one of the things to consider as the person with dementia is uh, considering who to, designate as their durable power of attorney for healthcare is um, who will most likely do what I want, me, the patient. And there might be differences of opinion among the family members. Let's say you have several children and one says, mom, I'm going to do everything to keep you alive at all costs. And the other says, mom, what is it you want? I'm going to do what you want. And so, um, and I've seen this many times where we'll look at an advanced directive, the durable power of attorney, and it just says the son, for example, and the daughter is not mentioned at all. And talking to the patient and to the son, it says, my, my daughter just says she's not going to let mom die. She's going to keep her alive at all costs. And mom doesn't want that. So mom said, made me the power of attorney. Yeah, we recently did a podcast with a woman who'd written a book called Sisterly Sh Sister Shove. But these two sisters had very different outlooks and very different, ide different ideas on what needed to happen and what should happen. So that, that does come up a lot. Again, the early stages, the patient with dementia can designate someone. Doctors, hospitals, nursing homes, institutions, they're going to want the family to agree. And because I'll tell you, even if you designate somebody, one, let's say your daughter, to make a decision, and the son says, no, I don't want to go with that decision, even though the daughter has all the legal authority to do it, the doctor, the hospital, or whatever, they're going to want an agreement, even if legally they're covered. But they really want everybody to agree, because that son could come back and sue them and say, oh, they killed my mother rather than the, the daughter says withhold the treatment. So anyway, um, yeah, it's, it's important for families to work together. We were very fortunate when my mother was at 
the end of her life. Um, her five living children, you know, gathered around her, her bed, and each time a decision was made, the three brothers and the two sisters were all either shaking their heads yes or shaking their heads no at exactly the same time. And, but we knew that that was, that was a gift in itself. It was. <laughs> I was kind of fortunate with my dad was the moment he came here to Virginia to live with us, he was very adamant about getting the powers of attorney for medical and for financial. And it took about a week to get it done, only from the aspect of timing. But every day, about every hour on the hour. We need to get a power of attorney. We need to get a power of attorney. We need to do this. We need to do this. And then once we finally got it done, and he just, but he was so stressed Mm -hmm. out over it Mm -hmm. because he had issues with my grandmother. And he didn't want us to have the issues that he had. So he was extremely, extremely adamant to the point of really stressing out over not having it. Um, so we were very, very fortunate, and I was designated for the financial, and she was designated for his medical and, and, and care. Again, it was done very early. It was before any diagnosis of, of the dementia at all. So um, we were very fortunate in that aspect. Well, he had also had multiple health problems before that, so he was right. he was aware that he needed he needed assistance and he wanted these things in place. But Hank, I would really like to hear from you because you work with people who are dealing with these end of life decisions um, regularly and seeing how difficult it is just to face the idea that you're about to lose someone. You have years of experience in in being at their side. Can can you give the advice to our listeners on what they might expect and, and how to respond to it and, and how you help them through it? Let me tell you a quick story about my mom's death. Um, mom had dementia, uh, probably Alzheimer's. We don't know. We didn't get an autopsy done, but probably Alzheimer's. So she had gone through years of memory loss and we ended up moving her to be close to my sister out in Colorado and she was in a memory care unit out there and she was going downhill and not eating much and not interacting much and then she she fell and broke her hip and uh, I put her in bed brought in a portable x-ray confirmed it was a broken hip and I knew this is the end so I flew out there and we met with, she was already in, under hospice care. And we met with the hospice doc on, I think it was Thursday morning or whatever, my sister and I. And the doc's first question was, how did your mom feel about her dementia? Now, I know we're getting ready for my mom, my mother to die, but I'm also a healthcare professional who does a lot with talking about end of life decisions. And I'm thinking, that is a great question. And he wanted to know how mom felt about what was going on with her. Not what my opinion was or my sister's opinion. How did your mom feel about her dementia? And we told him she hated it. She threatened suicide several times, had to get 24 hour caregivers to sit with her 
then he said, after we explain how much she hated it, he says, okay, I'll tell you what we're going to do. And he takes out the med list, this long med list. He says, we'll keep this drug. We'll get rid of this one. We'll get rid of this one. We'll up this one a little bit. And so basically he, he was doing, taking mom's direction mm -hmm. of what she wanted because we can't cure this disease. It has been a burden to her for years. And now we're looking at the end. So his question was, how did she feel about her dementia? And I think that's so important. And I, I can't think of any dementia patient who was glad to have dementia. <laughs> was looking forward to the, the years of losing their mind. And almost to the person, the family will say, you know, it's just a blessing when they die. And so these end of life decisions for people in advanced dementia, um, we're just, we're not talking about hastening the death of anyone, but let's not prolong it either. And so that's what I, I think a lot of these uh, decisions as, as you, you look into them for a dementia patient is, um, you know, we're not hastening, but we're just trying to allow a natural death to occur. So that's a, a good way to start because <laughs> that, that doc, he was just awesome and, and how he approached it. Well, Roger had told us many times that when it came time, he wanted to die at home. And, and we mm -hmm. were fortunate in that we were able to do that. Now he got most of his care, almost all of his care at the VA hospital. Uh, and, and they did have a uh, hospice program there and you know offered that to us. But we knew that this is where he, he wanted to be. And oh. one of the first things they did when they came in was exactly what you said. They looked over his list of medications and determined how a number of them could be eliminated immediately. Um, I think I counted something like 23 different medications uh, throughout a day. You know, some of them were a couple of times a day or three times a day. Um, so, so there was a lot, but he also had, you know, he had pills for his schizophrenia, he had pills for his dementia, he had pills for his COPD, um, for his congestive heart failure, all of this was going on, and most of that was eliminated, and you could see the difference in him, in his comfort levels even, when that happened. You mean it got better? Yeah, as far as being comfortable. Yeah. I think the interactions between all of those medications... Um, definitely had some impact on him, but there was, it was very clear that, you know, he was definitely towards the end. In fact, he even told me at one point, he woke up from his hospital bed and said, um, I had a dream last night and God told me my job here is done. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, can I say a few things about, um, families sure. the bench patient and do, making these end-of-life decisions. Uh, one of the things in this, uh, on a recent podcast you had on ambiguous loss, uh, when I started out as a nursing home chaplain, it was 1983 in Fairfax, Virginia, Fairfax Nursing Center. And we um, really got intentional about talking to patients and families about CPR and fitting tubes and living wills and all that kind of stuff. And that was my job. They, they said, Hank, you do that. So I, I was learning. So after we had worked with it a long while, then I did kind of a survey and looked at all the 200 pa 
patients we had there and what orders they had. And one of the things I found was on the dementia unit, almost every one of those patients had uh, no CPR order. Um, they call them DNRs in other places. But the other floors where you have more cognitively intact patients, there wasn't that higher percentage. We had a lot, but, but it wasn't 100%. And I thought a lot about that. And the spin I've put on that is these families who have taken care of these dementia patients have lost this patient inches at a time over the years. And to come to the point of saying, don't do CPR, it, it wasn't that big a step as someone who is maybe even walking around and playing bridge and you know they, they need nursing home care, but they, their brain's intact, they're still the same. So this loss that goes through the whole course of dementia, as difficult as it is, it's still a lot easier for families of dementia patients than other families, especially let's say someone's a healthy 80 year old and all of a sudden they have a serious stroke and now they can't talk and they can't eat and families are having to make decisions for them. Uh, they haven't gone through that whole grief work that uh, you families and dementia patients have to go through. So I'm saying that um, kind of as a, um, a word of encouragement, so to speak, that, that you can get to this point of saying no to aggressive treatment a lot quicker than a lot of other families can. And it's the sad case that this person inch by inch by inch, and that last inch of just saying no CPR or no feeding tube or no ventilator support is not that big a step. I think Mike can probably speak to that from where his father was to where he became. Um, and recently, somebody we talked to had said something about uh, letting go of who they were in order to embrace who they become. Uh, but Mike, you know, you have mentioned the huge change in your dad. Yeah, I mean, he was Superman. He had everything but the cape and the big red S. <laughs> and um, he was so frail and afraid. And he was not even a shell of the man that he was. And I had a hard time dealing with that because I knew what he was. And I couldn't deal with what he is at that point. And I had a hard time with that. I really did. Yeah, but like you said, it was it was gradual, and then you don't even notice it. And then one day, this thing hits you in the face. It says, "Wow, this is not the same guy." Um, and it was probably years after the decline started that I had the, for lack of a better word, the aha moment that he's not the oh, same. Wow. Well, something like. <laughs> You know, part of part of the blessing of what I did throughout this was being able to spend as much time with him as I did. And when we had these moments of clarity and when he would talk about his life in Italy and his life as a young man and learning just how extraordinary he was, was 
something that I will always treasure, you know, when he talked about being a young man in Italy and making skis so he can go skiing down the mountain, um, <laughs> you know, and, and working on the family farm and, and rolling up the carpets in the kitchen on a Saturday night and dancing the tango, uh, which is not something that you typically think of your father-in-law doing. <laughs> you know, that's part of the blessing. Yeah, that's great. Can I um, talk about the decisions people have to face Please. a little bit? So there's still basically kind of four big decisions that face people face toward the end of life. Number one would be about what about do about CPR. Now, this feels like it's a huge decision that I'm deciding whether or not to let dad die. CPR for advanced dementia patients does not work at all. It doesn't work for nursing home patients. It doesn't work with people who are in the terminal phase of a disease. It only works in the best situation in the hospital. Only about 17% of the people who get CPR survive to be discharged from the hospital. So it's the only treatment. We, ha we don't have to ask permission to beat on your chest to try to start your heart. It's, it's the emergency exception. So now, so docs have to ask you, can we not do CPR? And it feels like to a lot of families that they're deciding whether or not mom's going to die. And it's not the case. She's going to die anyway. So CPR is a pretty simple one for advanced dementia. It doesn't work. It doesn't do any good. It, it, if it, in the unlikely event the patient would survive, they're going to be in a much worse case. And you save their life so they can get more demented. And um, most people say, no, I don't want to do that. Well, not only that, Hank, if I can interject for one second, sure. if you're talking about an elderly person, CPR is a very touchy thing where you're pushing on somebody's chest and somebody's frail. You can actually break a rib and puncture a lung and, or other exactly. organs. So there's that whole side of it right. also that you yeah. need to, to, yeah. to bear in yeah. mind. Yeah. The second big issue, and this does come into play with a lot with advanced dementia patients, is feeding tubes. Eating difficulties is very common for Alzheimer's and all kinds of other dementias. My dad had strokes and Parkinson's, so he was a multi-infarct dementia as well as uh, Parkinson's. So eating difficulties is very normal. Um, but it's a part of the end of life for these patients. There's been a lot of research on this and putting a feeding tube in an advanced dementia patient who's having eating difficulties does not help them one bit. It actually makes their life worse and they don't live any longer. You put a, a feeding tube in an advanced dementia patient that has eating difficulties. Um, you have to, let's say you have two patients exactly the same uh, decline and you put a feeding tube in one and you carefully hand feed the other, they live about the same amount of time. That's what and the so nurse it, told us when they came up exactly for Roger. Right. It, it's not going to extend his life. It can make it more difficult. It can. And um, this would go also for IVs for dying patients. Uh, hydrating patients does not help them. This is for a dying patient. Now, a lot of times people, and even in the earlier middle stages of, of uh, uh, dementia might get dehydrated and might need some IVs to 
to pump them up a little bit. But when they're dying, it doesn't help. And dying of dehydration is a very comfortable way to go. And uh, both my parents, we did not do any IVs, feeding tubes as they were dying, just let them go comfortably. So, and I've seen it through hundreds of patients in all these years I've done this. So read the second chapter of my book. (laughs) (laughs) And we definitely want people to do that. Self-promotion here. Absolutely. (laughs) Third decision that often is faced by families is what about hospitalization? And let's say you're caring for someone at home or if they're in a nursing home or assisted living, memory care unit, something like that. Again, the question of comfort is number one. Um, Can we keep them comfortable where they are? Um, Do we really want to try to cure everything that comes along? Again, we're we're talking about toward the end of life here and end of a long living with dementia. And are we going to try to save their life so they can get more demented? Uh, And most families say, no, just keep them comfortable. Unfortunately, sometimes I see on the uh, Facebook pages with caregivers where where doctors are recommending things like mammograms and colonoscopies and things like that for somebody with advanced dementia. Oh, no. You know, you look at the recommendations, they say like, I'm in this now, over age 70, don't do any more um, uh, colonoscopies. Let's stop the mammograms because a lot of times the, the, the cancer that can be picked up by these procedures are so s- slow growing, you're going to die of something else anyway. Exactly. So that's something, and you know, we're, we're, I'm not a doctor, neither are the two of you. We're not recommending you talk to your own doc about that, but Absolutely. that's one of the things to consider is as you work with your physician on uh, end of life care, letting go of diagnostic, because one of the things about you can, the question you can ask is, if we do this diagnostic test, let's say a mammogram, and we find there's cancer, what are we going to do? And a lot of times, well, we're not going to do anything. We're just going to keep her comfortable. Same thing with a colon cancer or something. You know, again, you've got an advanced dementia patient, totally bedbound, does not know their family, incontinent about bladder, and why are we doing a colonoscopy or a mammogram? And again, I'm not giving medical advice here, <laughs> talk to your doctor right, about these right, things. Absolutely. Because it's so routine. And, and for good reasons, it's so routine to do these sort of diagnostic tests. But at some point, we need to say, stop this routine. So anyway, that's under the heading of hospitalization. The last decision you, you, you kind of like where you guys started uh, this conversation is what about hospice and shifting to uh, what we call comfort measures only. And again, this is the emphasis is on comfort, not trying to prolong the patient's life, not trying to hasten the death, but just let them go gently. It's hard, it, a lot of times it's a very hard decision for families and for patients. If patients, let's say a cognitively intact patient, because it's saying, I'm not going to make it out of this. I'm going to die from this disease. So Hospice is a big deal, and it's a big emotional and spiritual issue as people let go. So those are basically the, the main decisions people are going to have to face. Um, other ones, by the way, pacemakers, implanted defibrillators. 
maybe it's time to turn those off uh, toward the end. Dialysis, is that doing any good at all? I mean, I've cared for a number of dialysis patients who have chose to stop it and just let them die of the kidney disease rather than going through the hassle of going to dialysis. But any, any medical decision or medical treatment that it might have given you good quality of life for years, and pacemakers can do that for people, but maybe at the end, it's time to turn them off and let them go peacefully. And so much of, of what you've talked to us about today is about gentle death, comfort care, and not hastening the death. And we want to we want to make sure that that's absolutely clear. At no time are we we're talking about doing anything to end somebody's life, but only to make it easier for them when the end result is inevitable. Wow. Yeah. Well, I got to say, this was, I, I knew it was going to be very poignant, but, and, and it definitely exceeded the expectation. Um, a lot of good information, and I think as your book helped me get over the hump, I think this podcast will help a lot of other people um, form the baseline and go forward with, with understanding more, uh, whether it's talking to the hospice people, getting your book, or just their understanding. And um, can't, can't thank you enough for your pearls of wisdom. <laughs> well, thanks for having oh, me. Well, thank you so much for, for being here. Um, I know that our listeners heard some things that might have been difficult to hear, but will definitely benefit them in the person in their care uh, going forward. And, and that is absolutely invaluable. And one of the takeaways that I have on here was um, that moment you shared when the doctor said, how does she feel about their dementia and, and listening to what they have to say? We get so used to making decisions for them, we may forget that. Well, I wrote down a couple of things, and one of the things was um, that I didn't realize was that regardless of who's in charge with the medical directive, that the doctors would like an, well, want an agreement. Um, so it goes back to something we've said a number of times. you got to have everything in place, and, and this has to be a family decision, and the family has to understand so that you are on the same page. And I think the most, not interesting, but the most heartfelt thing is allow a natural death to occur. That, that is something that's, that's hard, but the natural death and the comfort, like my, my dad, not gasping for breath, we, we were able to uh, uh, alleviate that situation. And it's something we all want. I mean, we, right. we, we know, we're, to, we're aware very early in our life that eventually we're going to die. And um, we all want that peaceful death. Yes. And I also liked his four, four points, the CPR slash DNR. Uh, decision, the feeding tube decision, whether you're going to put them in a hospital or not hospital, and what is going to happen to them in the hospital with the tests and so on, and the the hospice decision to let them go gently, and I think that is the most wonderful thing, let them go gently. Thank you so much. 
Hank, um, again, for being Thanks here. Thanks for having me. You can find more information about the Reverend Dunn on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please subscribe to the show, go to iTunes and post a review. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. To find out more about us, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that dot show. Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast raising the bar on craft cocktails. Here you meet interesting folks, enjoy boozy banter, and learn how to make craft cocktails from a master. And if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and all those in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe download and review the shows as your review helps our show reach new audiences to find out more about missing link visit missinglink.company that's missinglink.company